The following episode is part of an ongoing series on the history of science and the Ottoman Empire, curated by Nir Shafir and available for download on iTunes, Hipcast, and SoundCloud. Check out the series tab on our website to learn more about this and other series, available only through ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today our guest is Michael Christopher Lowe, a PhD candidate at Columbia University's Department of History. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Today our topic of discussion is hydropolitics and the Hajj. And for those who are new to the topic of hydropolitics, essentially what we mean is political and uh, socioeconomic issues regarding water. So we're going to be operating in the realm of environmental history, talk a little bit about ecology and state management of resources, and we're also going to be dealing a little bit with the topic of disease. So before we get into defining the study of hydropolitics and, 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 and how this comes to bear on, on the history of the Hajj, I think it's useful for our listeners if you could explain a little how you came to the topic. Well, in 2008, I published an article in the International Journal of Middle East Studies called Empire and the Hajj, Pilgrims, Plagues, and Pan-Islam Under British Surveillance, uh, 1865 to, to 1908. And this was really a kind of summary of the work that I did on my master's thesis and uh, really imagining what my dissertation might look like. And most of that project was about cholera and quarantine. Um, And in subsequent years, I've continued to work on this theme as as a chapter uh, in my dissertation. But there's been a a great deal of of energy in recent years, particularly in work uh, dealing with India and the British Empire, uh, around some of these topics, and, and it's starting to get chewed up at the edges uh, by people working with English sources primarily. Uh, so I've been looking for ways to kind of escape the, the discourse around cholera uh, and quarantine. I, I think that there are some some ruts that have been created, and I, I'm also guilty of, of falling into those ruts as well, uh, in that uh, there was a, an article in 1982 by William Roth and it basically created an idea of a kind of twin infection surrounding the colonial Hajj, mostly from the Indian Ocean. That was sort of where the, the real energy was, um, Dutch Indonesian pilgrims and British Indian pilgrims. And this, this idea of a twin infection was basically that you, you had security concerns, political concerns among these colonial empires, but also this, this sanitary question, which you know, focused intense energy on the Hajj and basically made it an object of, of colonial observation and control. Uh, you have a whole string of documentary practices, passport controls, quarantines that sort of emerge from this. But this, this sort of twinning of the political and sanitary concerns has very closely hewed to the colonial archive itself. And so one of the things that I'm looking for in Ottoman sources is really a way around this to sort of create a, a slightly different conversation. Uh, and one of the ways that, that I've, I think I'm achieving this is basically to look at the Ottoman categories uh, themselves. Uh, so I really got this idea from reading a sanitary report from around 1911 uh, by uh, a sanitary official, Ottoman sanitary official named Qasim Izzuddin. Uh, and one of his chapters was basically about water procurement, Sute uh, Dariki. And this sort of got me thinking. I started reading some Arabic histories uh, as well. And 
Hijazi histories, histories of Jeddah, almost all of them have either sections or chapters specifically on the history of water. And so it seemed to be an organic category for this topic in the Ottoman and Arabic sources, where it wasn't, it really wasn't featured in the colonial archive. I guess what you're saying is the cholera issue is also tied to a much larger issue that's not just dealing with disease and sanitation, which is the issue of water in the Hejaz region. You see these things come together a little bit in the in the colonial discourse. Um, one of the sort of favorite tropes that you see in, in materials surrounding cholera and the Hajj, uh, there's a whole string of articles in the Lancet, famous uh, British uh, medical journal, and uh, Basically, they, the, all of these doctors were attacking Zamzam water as the source of cholera. This was basically a propaganda campaign carried out to say that Mecca was the source of cholera. Uh, although politically and scientifically, by the 1860s, it was a, a, a fact, basically, that India was the endemic source of cholera and, and nowhere else. But this sort of campaign of denial... Uh, was carried out by British officials and scientists as well. Um, and so Zamzam water became one of the points of focus uh, for this campaign. Uh, there's an interesting episode in the early 1880s. The consul, British consul in Jeddah, arranged for a sample to be brought to him of, of Zamzam water, and he sent it to London and had it analyzed. And the results came back. Uh, Dr. Uh, Franklin, who was a chemist uh, in London, uh, published them in, in the Times and then later in the Lancet. And basically his conclusion was that it was that the Zamzam water was six times more polluted with animal waste uh, than London sewage. Obviously, this is very inflammatory, very anti-Islamic uh, polemic. Uh, it was later picked up by one of the, the Dutch representatives to the Ottoman Board of Health in Istanbul and published in Ottoman uh, and, and French as well. And this set off a, a sort of a second conversation among Ottoman physicians. There was a, a second round of tests done by Mehmet Shakirbe and Bonkowski Pasha. And they came up with, you know, obviously very different results and, and expressed their outrage at these claims. And so I kind of use this episode as a way to get into the mutual misunderstandings and mistrust around, obviously, cholera as a waterborne disease and the sort of polemics that were used to attack the Ottoman Empire's management of water. And so sort of following on that, I, I started to look for an Ottoman conversation uh, on what the water politics of, of the Hajj looked like. And it was a completely different conversation. I mean, one of the interesting things that you've pointed out there for me as someone who's also working on disease is that there's narratives about the Ottomans or wherever the, the British and French, et cetera, go in the colonial world. They're saying, oh, they're not controlling the water. They're not controlling the disease. They don't use quarantine. They, they, they make all these broad statements about basically zero proactive uh, activity vis-a-vis -vis the ecological environment. And what you're actually saying is that it was the British who were inadvertently... Um, sidestepping the main issue, which is the, the movement of people to the Hejaz, which, which is bringing the disease into... Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, British India was an ecological disaster that spawned a global crisis of cholera. And they went to great lengths to sort of cover that up. Um, and the Ottomans were sort of caught in the middle. They 
we're certainly interested in carrying out uh, this kind of program, sanitary program in the Hijaz, uh, but they wanted to do it on their own terms. So when I was uh, looking for a kind of alternative, uh, I found what I would refer to as a kind of environmental history uh, of the 19th century Hijaz embedded in a, a, a series of books called Mirz al-Haramain by Ayub Sabri Pasha. And he has a, a series of, of six articles that come out in 1880 in Terjmani Hakikat, and then subsequently they're published in Mirz al-Haramain. And in the, the first volume of this sort of magnum opus, great compendium on, on Hijazi history, he, he, he writes about Ain Zubayda, uh, the sort of aqueduct system that was set up during the reign of Harun al-Rashid by his, his wife, Zubayda. And uh, he sort of goes through the, the long history of the repairs and, and, and sponsorship of, of this system uh, through the major repairs that were done by uh, Sultan Suleiman's daughter, Mihrama Sultan. And he eventually comes to his major turning point in the history of, of the water of the Hijaz uh, is the Wahhabi occupation in the early 19th century. And for him, this was sort of uh, the turning point where water insecurity became a huge threat uh, throughout the rest of the 19th century. And so I started to really investigate what the Wahhabis meant for him. And he, you see it in different places. Uh, other authors pick this up as well, but, but both in Mecca and Medina, they cut the water supply for Ain Zubayda and, and Ain Zerka. And this is sort of a, a framing device for him. He's sort of talking about this sort of dark period and then writing in the 1880s a kind of activist, Hamidian, civilizing mission uh, to fix these problems. And so you contrast this, this question of water safety that's brought up in these uh, British polemics with really questions about water security uh, and, and drought and the inability to, to repair and keep up these really ancient systems. And there's kind of a common thread there. In both cases, there's a sense that the, the locals essentially are this, the root of this water issue. Yes, definitely. This this comes in even stronger uh, later when we, we talk about the, the history of Jeddah's water supply. I mean, Mecca's water supply was uh, to a great degree fixed in the 1880s. Uh, the governor, Osman Nuri Pasha, uh, was largely credited with this, but there was a commission set up in 1878, uh, actually initially headed by locals. Uh, the Hanafi Mufti of Mecca, an Indian, uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman Siraj, basically seeing the damage done um, by the Wahhabis in the early part of the century. There had been some repairs done by Mehmed Ali Pasha, uh, sporadic repairs between, the 18, say, 1820 and 1878. Um, there had been two really big floods, 1861-62 uh, and 1877-78, and these floods, in my opinion, probably are the, the trigger for all of this interest in the early 1880s, late 1870s, uh, around Ain Zubaydah. Um, but the way that this sort of environmental history is narrated by the Ottoman center is about the Wahhabi occupation. But this, uh, this restoration of Ain Zubaydah that happens uh, in the 1880s is very successful. 
huge donations were brought in from India, especially uh, to a lesser degree, Egypt. Uh, you might even say that this is a kind of model for your later pan-Islamic uh, donations for the Hijaz Railway. That's something that's sort of, you know, dancing around in the back of my head, but I haven't really sorted out how to get at it. Um, but this this set of repairs was completely successful. Uh, and then Osman Nuri Pasha directed the commission's attention to uh, Ain Vezeria, uh, or Wazeria, um, and supplying fresh water to Jeddah, which for basically forever had been confined to rainwater uh, catchment and, and dealing with uh, sarnichlar or uh, tanks or cistern water. Um, and of course, the problem with, with cistern water is uh, rainwater uh, is that it would sit for, you know, three, six, twelve months before being sold to pilgrims at really exorbitant prices, uh, and it would spoil. It would be, you know, microbe infested, uh, and everyone was more or less aware of this. And so, Osman Nuri Pasha manages to raise the funds, and finally, Jeddah is supplied with fresh water. Uh, and this project is finished by 1887-1888. Uh, Writing just two years later, Mehmed Shakir Bey, this Ottoman physician sent to um, write up a laiha for Abdul Hamid, uh, he, he laments the fact that the water supply, which had been plentiful just a couple of years ago, was now drying up. And he goes into a long diatribe about the reasons for this. It wasn't an ordinary malfunction. He blamed the locals. And essentially, in the period where there was water scarcity, a kind of system of water profiteering based around tank ownership uh, arose. And so these local tank owners um, basically had a monopoly on the water supply. And so they began to sabotage these new Ottoman waterworks. And so the, you, you have this sort of uh, narrative which relies both on sabotage on the part of local Arab notables uh, in the principal cities in Mecca and Jeddah, but then also uh, on the sabotage of the Wahhabis. So it's always sort of this um, you know, inability to get them to understand the civilizing mission. Mm -hmm. And this, these narratives also come up in discussions of famine, not just in the Ottoman Empire, but actually in British India and all over the place. And, you know, we have we have debates about who's really causing the famine. Is it the locals who are profiteering or is it these uh, sort of unprecedented um, networks for shipping, whether it's grain or for moving water that are that are uh, kind of throwing off the balance of local ecologies? So my, qu my question is, actually, could you give us a sense of just uh, how much the increase in number of pilgrims I mean, this, this, the 19th century? this is a good point. I mean, uh, Jidda, for example, is a town, you know, maybe at the end of the 19th century of, of 30,000 people. Um, but you, you can have an influx on a, you know, Hajj Akbar year uh, of up to maybe 300,000 pilgrims. And so, uh, you know, a tenfold increase in the population for a, a punctuated period of time. The steamship really creates problems, I think. Um, you know, prior to, say, the 1850s, 1860s, um, your, your pilgrimage populations were coming in much smaller numbers. Uh, they tended to be of a much more elite status. Um, this was a, a huge problem for 
all of the empires of the late 19th century, basically how to regulate um, poor pilgrims going on Hajj. There's a whole separate discourse on mm. pauper pilgrims um, and how to regulate their their movement. Um, that's a, a, a an entire other podcast um, or, or a chapter. Um, but this this pauper pilgrim issue. Um, you had a, a certain segment of pilgrims who couldn't pay their uh, sanitary fees when they arrived, and so they were classified as such, as fukara. And uh, what they would do is, whether they were coming from Singapore or Bombay, they would get a, a one-way ticket, and often at the end of the Hajj, they would land in Jeddah with no money and basically begging the authorities to, to repatriate them. And so the Ottomans, uh, to a lesser extent the British, would have to find a way to, to get them back. But in the, the period where they're waiting, uh, you had this enormous potential for disaster. So I think this is a good place to stop for a second and talk about the maps you've put up on our on our website on, on midafternoonmap.com and, and on autumnmysterypodcast.com for people to visually understand uh, the topic. The I mean, I don't even know exactly what I'm looking at when I see this map, these little swirls. and Well, it, it took me quite a while to figure out what I was looking at uh, as well. I mean, this uh, the first map that's posted is from 1848, um, and it's, it's nine plates in, in the Ottoman uh, archive, and you, we have two, I believe. So you're only getting, this is only a small corner of it's, this massive... It's, uh, it's the best part. It's basically the, the part that has the sort of main description, uh, the main Ottoman text, and then you'll see in the, the second frame, uh, you can make out basically the outline of, of uh, the Haram of Mecca and, and sort of the way in which... Uh, the Anzabeda aqueduct flows in uh, to Mecca, and this this map is is so strange. I mean, it basically looks like uh, puffs of clouds, um, but it, it basically the the sort of puffy images uh, are are sh showing you the the wadis, um, the the valleys, and the 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 source of Anzabeda, which is uh, not featured uh, in the maps that we have is coming from Wadi Numan, uh, and you basically see the the pathways of the aqueducts, um, uh, and then the way that they flow into Mecca. But they also go through Arafat, Muzdalifa, Mina, all the principal places uh, associated with the Hajj. The other thing that I would say about the the maps is there's a, a very a very brief text. Uh, which is a kind of m mini history uh, of the aqueduct system uh, up to 1848. And it, of course, features uh, the, the philanthropy of Zubaydah, the wife of the great Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid, um, uh, who's uh, said to have quipped that it, I believe it cost 1.75 million dinars uh, in She's reported to have said that uh, it was a gold dinar for every stroke of the pickaxe. Um, and then the other uh, person that's mentioned in the text is Mihram al-Sultan, uh, the daughter of uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, or Kanuni. And uh, she also is very important because she not only carried out a, uh, a major set of repairs, but added another source, um, brought in water from Ain Zafran, um, 
to sort of supplement the, the um, Enzo Beta source. Um, and what I think is interesting about these maps is that they fall uh, in the middle of the periodization set up by Ayub Sabri Pasha in his Mirthal Haramein, uh, where he basically is, is saying that they were neglected uh, following the Wahhabi occupation of Hijaz. And then he contrasts that with the very activist um, work of the Ains of Ada Commission in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, but this, this narration of Ayub Sabri Pasha is a little bit problematic. Uh, he's basically kind of casting uh, the blame for this ecological crisis on the Wahhabis. But in, in fact, if we look at the Ottoman archives, uh, there are repairs made in the 1840s, 1850s, uh, and uh, significant repairs done in 1862 following a, a huge uh, flood, Selfalaketi, uh, um, and uh, substantial uh, disaster relief efforts also take place to uh, provide funds for people to rebuild their houses um, in the wake of this this huge flood. And so uh, there's a way in which this this map gives us some idea uh, that there's a bit of hyperbole in Ayub Sabri Pasha's narration of the ecological history of Hijaz. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those kind of great finds that change our understanding of history but also make it much more complicated. It's it's quite analogous to what Alan Mikhail's done for us actually in Nature and Empire in Ottoman Egypt. Obviously he's talking about irrigation, not necessarily drinking water and sanitation, but the discovery that a lot of things have been going on in the past that uh we've been unaware of or narratives have pushed aside yeah i mean i i suppose it's doubly so for for hijaz there's no one's really written about any of this in english um i'm i'm sort of interrogating an ottoman narrative with ottoman archival materials um one suggestion for for reading for the viewers which will put up on the website as well uh for for, for those listeners who read Turkish, uh, Gulden Sari Yildiz has written a really excellent work on the Hijaz quarantine system, uh, Hijaz Karantina Teşkilata, uh, and there's significant uh, sections on the, the Suma Selesi or, or the water issue in which she discusses some of these things, but doesn't quite get into some of the problems with Ayub Sabri Pasha's uh, you know, narration of Hijazi environmental history. And for those wondering about the, the scale or sort of the the layout of, of, of what later uh, governments inherited from the Ottomans looked like, we have, a, have another map that we've posted up in the blog showing, we, we're not sure on the date, but it shows, it shows the different distribution pipelines, uh, fountains, cisterns, ablution stations, wells, and, and many other things tied to water management in Ottoman Hijaz. So the framework you've set up here is kind of interesting. On one hand, we have all these kind of political battles over who has the right to control the water and, and the ecology in general. On the other hand, you have a very practical issue, which is that there's a lot of pilgrims coming to a region with very limited water supplies and extreme potential for, for epidemics. So how does this get resolved? What, what ends up being the trajectory uh, during this late Ottoman period? 
the steps that were taken in, in particular in Jidda, I think, are the, the most revealing. Um, both Jidda and Yanbu, the principal ports of the Hijaz, of course, Yanbu for Medina and, and Jidda for Mecca, um, these, these ports both experienced extreme drought uh, in the 1890s. And this question of sabotage um, and, and this sort of inability of the Ottoman center to overcome these entrenched local interests gave rise to a different set of solutions uh, in the 1890s. Um, I, when, once I got into uh, the Ottoman documents in the archives, I was really shocked to see how early desalinization techniques came in. Uh, and they started to inquire about these as early as 1894. Uh, the first few documents that I read, I, I just thought, there's no way that this is happening this early. Um, and when you talk about desalinization, you mean using seawater yes. as drinking water? Yes, yes. So th this was the, the alternative uh, eventually. Um, this was a, a kind of ongoing saga uh, between 1894 and 1911. Um, there were competing interests. Um, basically, the local administration needed to raise enough funds to get these machines, um, and the quarantine board was not necessarily interested in diverting funds uh, for that. So there's a sort of interesting question of, you know, obviously always the Ottomans are sort of, uh, they have these grand plans, but their ability to carry them out you can follow an issue for, you know, two, three, four years, five years, ten years, and, and the officials say, well, well, it's coming, it's coming, and and uh, it sort of drags on. But this question of desalinization techniques, by 1907, they are able to install a jidda. Um, I forget the exact capacity, but something like 100 tons of water uh, a day uh, is the capacity. And these sutaktir uh, makinasa, or these uh, filtration, distillation machines, uh, quickly become a huge part of water access. There were four springs uh, bringing water to Jeddah, and uh, around 1907, um, there's a report basically that there's only one of the springs uh, that's accessible. The other three had been sabotaged uh, by this, you know, coterie of, of water profiteers. And so you had a population basically relying on well water or rainwater. And the disease potential, of course, was, was terrific. Um, but this revolution in desalinization techniques that we now know uh, in Jidda, over 90% of the water used in Jidda is desalinated. I mean, this is the history of Saudi Arabia writ large. Um, and Toby Jones, in his really fantastic book, Desert Kingdom, alludes to these issues and talks about the importance uh, of water, not just oil, in the making of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and you see the sort of priorities uh, of consolidating the Hijaz, um, that, that water is really central to this process for the early Saudi state. Um, but we don't get a sense of where this hydropolitics is coming from, and really that the, the early stages of this were already in place. Uh, so when the Saudis come in in the 20s, desalinization had already taken root. I mean, it was being essentially run by the British um, in the absence of the Ottomans. 
but the groundwork had been laid. The facility itself was there. And desalinated water was really the staple for Jidda uh, up until the 40s. Another source of water was brought in from uh, quite a distance away from Wadi Fatma uh, in 1947 by British engineering firm uh, Jalatli uh, Hanke and Sewell, uh, who had long been engaged in, in the uh, pilgrimage steamship traffic. When the British brought in this source from, from Wadi Fatma, uh, this was uh, kind of a, a reversal uh, going back to spring water, but it was really a temporary reversal. Desalinization, the, the, the path that the, the Ottomans ultimately had taken, was the wave of the future. It, it really was uh, to sort of spell out uh, the way that the 20th century would move uh, for the Saudi state. And... Uh, Probably the most fascinating thing uh, about this project for me was to really think about the ways we can create a a prehistory for Toby Jones's Desert Kingdom. I mean, he sort of alludes to these things, but I found myself asking the question, you know, the hydropolitics that he says were co-opted by the early uh, Saudi state, where did they come from? And so that was sort of part of the impetus for this project. One of the the interesting things to me uh, was to really think through uh, the the early Saudi state, their their priorities, and I think we tend to overemphasize World War One as this monumental uh, breakpoint, when in fact, if we look at say the Saudi state from the twenties on through the nineteen fifties, maybe even as late as nineteen sixty, they don't have the the resources that we associate with them as the, you know this great petrostate. Obviously, oil was not discovered until the 30s, um, but that that early process of oil discovery was very mixed up with the hydrological question as well. Ibn Saud had uh, gotten to know uh, Charles Crane, of course, the famous King Crane Commission, and had asked that he send someone to prospect. Uh, we would think perhaps for mineral wealth or, or oil, but his primary um, question was water, uh, and, and Jeddah was the, the, the main concern. And so uh, he sent a, an engineer, Charles Crane sent uh, Carl Twitchell, who was at the time working in Yemen uh, for Imam Yahya, basically doing similar things. And so Twitchell comes in and uh, basically does a, a scout for water resources and comes up with pretty negative results. Um, but eventually he's able to put together a, a small project to rehabilitate Ain Waziriya, this main Ottoman project. And so we see this sort of recycling uh, of older Ottoman projects. Um, it, it's very interesting at this time too, the British correspondence is sort of very warily watching Twitchell and jealously realizing uh, the rise of American influence. And in Carl Twitchell's personal papers, he basically says that this episode of, of uh, working to find a source of water for Jeddah allowed him to create the relationship that led to the uh, Saudi Aramco uh, oil concession, the Standard Oil concession um, that was achieved in 33-34. And so there's a way in which the search for water in Saudi Arabia begot 
the American Saudi relationship, um, which I find pretty shocking. I mean, how hard is it for you to restrain yourself from making uh, kind of cheap puns about oil and water not mixing here? Because I, 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 I have not, uh, unfortunately. I'm, I'm giving a paper uh, in Leiden in May, and the title is Like Oil and Water. Um, and I think it's it's a point that has to be made. Yeah, and I think you're I think you're onto something. If we think about Iraq, for example, we actually did an early episode uh, on oil in Ottoman Iraq and the uh, late Ottoman oil contracts in, in Mosul in these places uh, that actually uh, paved the way for for later contracts. But Iraq is another place where, of course, the primary concern during the late Ottoman period and all the projects that being laid out were about water controlling the uh, Tigris and Euphrates River. And so your oil and water combination, if you wanted to, I think could be expanded to tell us a lot more about a, a, a large swath of the modern Middle East. People always look you know, politically to the Middle East as a place that's all about oil. You're telling us in the case of the Hajj, and I would argue in many other cases, it's, it's also about water. It's the interconnection between the two that I think is is so fascinating in this particular case. But I, I think you could find it uh, in many different uh, instances. Um, hopefully, uh, we're going to be doing a, uh, a panel at Mesa this fall uh, featuring Christine Filiou and Alan McHale. Uh, we don't know if it's been accepted yet, but we're, we're hopeful. Um, and there's a PhD student at, at Columbia, Dale Stahl, uh, who's going to be doing a paper uh, about William Wilcox, who is a famous uh, hydrological right. irrigation he, expert. He worked on the Hindia barrage, but before that he was in India and Egypt, right? Yes, and but the Ottomans hired him in Iraq. Um, and this is a really fantastic example of this not only colonial circulation of expertise, um, but the way in which uh, these issues can be directly linked together. So in this new framework that we've set up where, where water is kind of a central issue in the Middle East, uh, you know, for the case of uh, the Hejaz in Saudi Arabia, maybe could you give us a sense of what a history of this region with water instead of oil at the center would look like? Well, I, I think that the, the, the thing that this, this project has brought out for me is, uh, and I think this is a broader trend that we, we all need to be working uh, on, is to sort of bring down this you know, radical shift between history of the Ottoman Empire and the history of Arab nation states. Um, if, if you use water or environmental history as a larger con- construct, the, the shift... Uh, of World War One doesn't seem so great. Uh, the water questions in, in this particular instance are, are fairly constant, um, and and they continue on well into the 20th century and and are still with us. Uh, so I think that 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 continuity, uh, whereas oil is this this radical break, uh, you know, the history of the 20th century is something different from the history of the 19th century when you construct things around oil. Um, but when you bring in water, the continuities paint a completely different picture. Uh, and so I have a very difficult time saying how, you know, 
Ottoman desalinization projects in 1890 look different than Saudi ones uh, in the 1940s or the 1970s. They're basically doing the same thing. But at the same time, and this theme of hydropolitics, you know, political issues arising from water issues, if we want to point to something that is a big shift in the Middle East, we might talk about the formation of hard borders between different regions, the formation of nations. Just I'm just thinking of, for example, the Tigris and Euphrates, which are flowing out of Turkey into Iraq, or for Syria, for example, the implications of shared uh, water resources, Israel-Palestine. This, this might be something new that creates political uh, roadblocks to dealing with water issues that wouldn't have been there during the Ottoman period. I don't know if I can speak to the political roadblocks as much, but I think that the the sort of redrawing uh, of boundaries uh, creates big problems for us. Um, one of the the things that comes out of Toby Jones's work uh, is essentially a kind of teleological look at Saudi history. Uh, he, you know, briefly discusses at times things about the Hejaz or Jeddah, etc. Really, it's a, a history about Eastern province. Uh, and I think oil does that, uh, essentially. And so, yes, you have these questions that, that come out of the redrawing of boundaries and, and sort of uh, concretizing nation-state boundaries. But in the case of Hejaz, you have something that's different. Hijaz disappears, is basically destroyed uh, as a, a kind of regional or national history. And so certain issues just disappear. Um, so I, it, it works both ways, essentially. So we've set up this Ottoman prehistory, as you referred to it. Uh, we can't ask you to explain everything that's happened with water, because uh, this, this has been a, a busy century, I'm sure, for this topic in uh, Saudi Arabia. But... Okay. Um, obviously, for the Ottomans, the, you know, the Hijaz was the the only priority. Whereas for the Saudis, there's a a broader set of issues. Um, for the Saudis, obviously, provision of water for for the Hajj uh, was critical because it was their revenue stream. Uh, you know, the the petrodollars that we we tend to associate with them. That's a you know a, a post. World War II phenomenon. So the early couple of decades, really taxes on pilgrims, um, which were actually collected by uh, the water carrier guild, uh, that was a, a principal revenue stream. So the priority of, uh, of water security was paramount just for their survival. Um, but then there are other priorities as well. I mean, agriculture uh, is another question. So the agricultural schemes for Eastern province uh, create a, a kind of uh, separate strand of questions. Uh, and uh, Twitchell and then later uh, Aramco were very much involved uh, in this process. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to work through for myself uh, in, in writing this project, and I'm still uh, in the process of, is to really sort of bring this up to the present in terms of uh, where the water sources are coming from. Uh, for instance, in Hijaz, and uh, just uh, a few quick internet searches, and you're basically able to find that Jidda is now almost completely 
dependent on desalinated water. Um, in the 70s, uh, a, a new you know, huge facility was set up. In fact, the old uh, condenser machine, Ottoman era condenser machine, is now a, a sculpture um, in a traffic lane. So you have these sort of mangled bits of this old machine that sort of uh, are, are sculpture in Jeddah, but very much reflecting the importance of this question uh, for the city. But you have this new facility uh, built in the 70s uh, and actually with support from Coca-Cola, and so you see, see this trajectory um, to a kind of, uh, you know, privatized uh, global industrial process. Um, I know we're, we're moving a little bit away from uh, the, the sphere of your research, but I know that our listeners will be interested, you know, sort of as people living in the present. We have, if I can use the example of uh, Donald Worcester's work on uh the American Midwest and uh, problems resulting from um, sort of haphazard over-irrigation of land or whatever you want to call it that, that result in crises, notably the Dust Bowl. And uh, we find we do find a little bit of hyperbole in this narrative, but nonetheless, w- as I understand it, even the U.S., the world's largest producer of food, is essentially sitting on land that without like massive irrigation... Deep, deep down into you know water supplies in in the earth, and not to mention fertilizing the soil, it would essentially turn into a desert. And so, for a place that actually is largely desert, what, how stable is the water situation in recent decades in Saudi, particularly surrounding the Hajj? Is there a real risk of ecological disaster there? I guess is is what I'm wondering. I mean, this is this is a question that that I've thought about uh, quite a bit. I, I don't think in the the present regime there is that risk, but uh, you know, let's let's say you have a, a regime collapse in Saudi Arabia, and oil revenue is not the same as it used to be. Uh, you could have a cascading effect. Uh, you have these very precarious uh, hydrological systems, and you know. It's it's an amazing fact to think about Jeddah as a city of 1.5 million, and you know a yeah. century ago we're talking about a town of 30,000. Of course, th- this is completely precarious. Um, well, I, I mean, I don't know if you did it on purpose, but that's a great that would be a great talking point for the Saudi monarchy if they need another one. Like, look, <laughs> apocalypse of water shortage. If we no, I, I think that there's some truth in that, and. I'm, I definitely don't want to be an apologist for the uh, the Saudi monarchy, but on the other hand, I think uh, a different regime, uh, a different set of economic circumstances, it, the hydrological situation could be a house of cards. Well, Chris, you know it's it's been a topic we've dealt with a number of times on the podcast: the the environmental history of the Ottoman Empire something that's both of personal interest for me as a researcher, but also seems to be one of the new trajectories in, in the study of the Middle East. And, and your project, you know, for me, brings up a lot of uh, questions that I haven't actually been asking. You know, you're connecting issues like drinking water and fossil fuels and going all the way back to the Ottoman period is something kind of counterintuitive for, for us. But I think that you've 
showed how how these issues are intertwined today on the podcast. And I like how you've you've shown today for people who are maybe skeptical about environmental history as being very deterministic or not focused on human actors, how the politics is intertwined with the ecology and with the resources. It, it's interesting that you say that. I had a, a conversation with a colleague recently who is skeptical about sharing a paper uh, in a panel that we were putting together, thinking that it was... Uh, to sort of mainstream politics uh, to fit in with some of the environmental topics. And my retort was, you know, if constitutions uh, in Egypt are the, the, you know, bread and butter of history, then water and oil should be the same for Saudi Arabia. I I don't think that this kind of topic is a, a niche topic. I think it should be, you know, the center of our political histories. Um, I'm I'm very skeptical uh, when when anyone sort of says, "Oh, well, you're doing epidemiological history or colonial medicine or environmental history." I, I think I'm doing mainstream Ottoman history, mainstream Middle East history. It just happens that you know the politics, uh, the, the priorities of the politics are environmental. Well, I mean, you're not going to get any argument from me, obviously, but, uh, you know, we did a three-part series on malaria as if it's like the most important issue in the Middle East. So I totally agree. Um, If we can stand back here and talk about uh, methodology or historiography a little bit, I I think there is something to be said for the fact that a lot of what has been written on disease and ecology hasn't really been in touch and totally connected with... uh, no, I think we need to insist that we not be ghettoized uh, and put into a sort of subtopic. Uh, I think that, you know, when asked, you know, I do Middle Eastern and, and Ottoman history, I don't do environmental history, although it's one of my biggest interests. It depends who asks, I guess. Uh, it, it does. It always does. <laughs> well, today our discussion with an uh, environmental historian, or let's not call him an environmental historian, or historian of the Hejaz uh Michael Christopher Lowe has has brought out a lot of issues that uh, I'm sure a lot of people are following who are uh, young scholars and researchers formulating topics. For those in need of a little more background reading, we've put up a a bibliography on the website. We've also got those images that we've mentioned in the maps. Um, Provide space as well for comments and questions. Chris, I want to thank you one last time for coming on. This has been a really great discussion for me, at least. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. That's all for this installment of the Autumn History Podcast. Until next time, take care.